I was reflecting today on the difference between um, an idea of retreat, of meditation retreats, and what it's really actually like from the inside when you're living it. And it's just kind of interesting from the outside when you hear about retreats, they sound like kind of idyllic places where they're beautiful and it's peaceful, bucolic, wonderful setting, and for us, really nice weather and considerate people and, um, you know, no real demands, a chance for peace and quiet. And little do they know, those that have this idea of, from the inside, um, how much suffering is possible, how much of a range of weather is possible. It just ain't like it seems. And I always am aware of this after the first day of a retreat, because I get to talk to a lot of you and find out not that the suffering's like anguish, but that it's not so easy. It's not the way it seems from the outside. In our daily life, when we start really kind of pulling the veil, we catch on to how well orchestrated it is to avoid discomfort. I mean, we have an incredible repertoire of habits to keep ourselves occupied and busy and really not touch into where there's unease, where there's angst. So we come to retreat, and the most notable thing is we're immediately deprived of our primary modes of avoiding ourselves. And that's almost like the definition of a meditation retreat. It's like the normal stuff we do to not be present is not right at our fingertips. Now, the given, as you've probably noticed, is we quickly transplant our rituals. We find our way. We find our way to be here and latch our worries and plans around different things. Instead, we worry and plan around where we're going to sit in the hall or if somebody's taking our space or whether there's going to be enough food left for seconds or when should I fit in my shower. And we, It just kind of shifts. Or what do I say in the group interview? It's like the same worry planning energy is like looking for something to latch onto and it finds just a different realm of experience. But still, because we're practicing presence, we start seeing more clearly how our minds are working. In 18th century Europe, there um, was an understanding that plates, all the chinaware and so on, when it got cracked, would be covered with wax. And the word sincere means without wax. It means not having these cracks covered. And in a way, I feel like as soon as we stop playing out our normal rituals of being busy, of putting on the wax, of covering things with our personalities, we begin to see the cracks. And cracks are both, you might think of them as imperfections, or might think of them as kind of a breaking open so that the source, the light, can shine through. They might be both. So what would draw us to come to retreats, to this kind of a weekend or even longer retreats, 
if the given is that we're going to be face to face with both the breaks, the cracks, the imperfections, and really that mysterious source that we kind of run from sometimes, what would draw us to being uncomfortable? Because I know after the first day that mostly everybody has been uncomfortable, at least some. And I also know that mostly everybody gets the idea at some point that, you know, I don't really want to be here. (laughs) I want to go home. (laughs) And even thinks, maybe I'll leave a little early on Sunday. (laughs) Now, close your eyes and be honest. How many of you had the thought that you didn't want to be here today? Just the thought. Pat, are you counting? <laughs> okay. <laughs> the Dharma police will get back to you later. <laughs> I have almost never been to a retreat, not usually a weekend, but a longer retreat, where there's not some point that, I, that that comes up, that idea. Now, because it's happened so often, I've learned not to take it too seriously. And because I see it in everybody, I just figure it's like this. We are conditioned when we reach unpleasantness to try to pull away from it. And what that means is we're going to not want to be here at certain times. It doesn't mean that we'll then act on that. There's more wisdom than that frequently. Or else we got to ride with someone else. (laughs) So what draws us to doing things and being in places where it's really hard, where it's uncomfortable. In a sense, um, my experience in my own being is that there's some part of my deepest nature that even when it's uncomfortable is calling me to wake up and that there's something about waking up that's worth it, that's worth being uncomfortable. So tonight what I'd like to talk about some is this way of listening to our deepest nature and of being able to face what's uncomfortable and how the blessing of awareness in any moment that we're aware can have us transform the difficulties into that kind of a crack where the light comes through. Do you understand? Taking what's hard and having it turn out to be really bodhi for awakening. You know, they say manure for awakening, that everything serves this awakening. Now, where we start in this unfolding of getting from just fighting the difficulties to actually growing with them is we start realizing that we're living in a lot of stories. And if we're caught in the story of something's wrong, something's bad, got to get away, and we believe it, then what we'll do is behave in a way that perpetuates our suffering. We'll quickly leave marriages or leave work commitments or leave the moment because we just think we can't handle it. So the trick in meditation is beginning to recognize when we're caught in stories about how it is. And this goes for stories in the middle of a meditation sitting. Okay, I've been off in thoughts about what I'm going to do when I get home. To the larger stories of, is this worth it? And what's wrong with me? And am I doing this right? 
Let me describe a few different kinds of stories that are particularly sticky and that get us in trouble. One of them is the ongoing self-evaluation, and most everyone I know has it, whereby we're constantly telling ourselves a story about, how am I doing? Did you have that one today at all? Am I doing the meditation right? How am I appearing to myself and to my world? We're all trying to meet standards. If we were born into a family or a culture, we were given standards to meet that told us whether or not we were okay. And depending on the health of our family, often falling short really meant the fear of losing love. We all had standards. And so we internalized them. So we're all walking around with these internalized stories about here's what has to be the case for me to be okay. And frequently we're falling short. We carry a whole set of cultural standards, many of which are really unhealthy about how we should look and how we should act. Men are given standards on how they're supposed to be male, women on females. Standards that get us in a huge amount of trouble in terms of really feeling a sense of integrity. Now here's a story. In this magazine, they had people write in about blind dates. And we, those of you that have been out in, in the marketplace in the last while will remember <laughs> that it's an amazing thing. Have you done the personals? It's an amazing thing. How are we supposed to present ourselves? How do we sell ourselves? And given the standards of our society, how do we try to match them? This is one. She hadn't worn her glasses, so I had no idea she needed them. When she put Parmesan cheese instead of sugar in her tea, I thought, well, both shakers look alike. It could happen to anyone. <laughs> but when she came back from the ladies' room and sat with the guy in the next booth, <laughs> I figured something was wrong. Turns out she had no idea what I looked like. He was dressed in the same colored shirt, so she figured he was me. She couldn't see a thing. Now, it's, it's a sad story in a way, you know, and I feel only like I can tell it because I've recently felt more and more comfortable to wear glasses in front of groups that I can speak the story, but how much people contort themselves to present themselves to be okay. We do it at retreat. We do it when we're in walking meditation. Some of you might remember today moments when you were doing walking meditation, but there was one layer of your mind that was watching yourself do it and watching other people watch you and wondering how you looked. Any moment that we're watching ourselves in that way, that we're evaluating ourselves from the perspective of the world, is a moment that we're not inside our experience. We're not really touching the earth or feeling a sense of connection. We're in that world of, how am I doing? Am I okay? Am I falling short? Then there's the suffering, the stories about not having what we want. These are the stories that say in some way that the next moment has something that this moment does not. So there's that chronic leaning forward into things well, we're not really, and you can feel it physically, we're not in the balanced presence of here and now. We're kind of leaning forward, wanting something different. Now, this is suffering. 
In any moment that we're wanting things different, we're not at home. We're not really connected with what's happening. If we're wanting the meditation to end, the retreat to end, if we're wanting to have something different on our plate, or a different car, our vacation time to be here, or a different career, or a different partner, that's suffering. So it's interesting to check in, in a sense, in your life, in a broad way. What are your stories about how things are not the way you want them right now? And how much are those stories keeping you from letting this time in your life matter and be lived fully? How often do we live our lives like we're waiting for the good times to come? Or for some of us, the good times were back then and it's just downhill, which is equally sad. So wanting it different. An Amish boy and his father were visiting a mall. They were amazed by almost everything they saw, but especially by two shiny silver walls that could move apart and then slide back together. The boy asked, what is this father? The father, never having seen an elevator, responded, son, I've never seen anything like this in my life. I don't know what it is. While the boy and his father were watching with amazement, a large old woman in a wheelchair rolled up to the moving walls and pressed a button. The walls opened and the woman rolled between them into a small room. The walls closed and the boy and his father watched, eyes wide open. The small circular numbers above the walls light up sequentially. They continued to watch until they watched the last number and then the numbers began to light in the reverse order. Finally, the walls opened up again and a gorgeous, voluptuous, 24-year-old blonde woman stepped out. The father, not taking his eyes off the young woman, said quietly to the boy, Son, go get your mother. (laughs) Now, for most of us, the dukkha or suffering of wanting it different is kind of a chronic low-level dissatisfaction. We're not even aware that we've, that this moment's not okay. There's just this habit of kind of waiting for something to be a little better. And when the story's there, there's a degree of buying in. Sometimes we might have the idea, um, I want to be in a different place, I don't want to be at retreat any longer. And because we kind of know, okay, that's what happens, we don't buy in so much. It's just a story. It's just something we recognize going through our mind. Where our suffering comes up is when we believe the stories and thoughts, believe that we need to have things different in order to be okay. When there's a story about something being not okay with the moment, there's a deeper story usually buried in it, which is, I'm not okay. This is one I invite you not to necessarily believe me on, but just to explore. When we think things aren't okay, we blame. Sometimes we blame others. Sometimes things aren't okay because another person did us wrong or was inconsiderate or was offensive in some way. More often than not, though, even when we're doing that, there's an undercurrent that something's wrong with me. And this is the deepest suffering, I think, that we experience. This is 
this very um, pervasive sense that I'm not quite okay. And you can feel it at retreat a lot if you start paying attention and watch the judging mind and sense how wall-to-wall it can be with not only evaluation but some deep chronic feeling of, I just can't do it right. We interpret life, things that are happening around us in terms of what we're doing wrong. I saw this some years ago in The New Yorker. It was a kind of cartoon with a, a man sitting in his living room, and he was looking very angry and upset. And he was surrounded by his family and his pets, and each one of them was having a, an interpretation of what was going on. And his wife was saying, was it something I said? And the dog was saying, was it something I did? The cat, was it something I dragged in? The parrot, was it something I repeated? <laughs> We do that. We have these interpretations, and they usually have to do with moi doing something wrong. Or there's a mistrust of what we're seeing around us. We sense that in some way things are rigged, and we blame you know, the world around us. There's this kind of mistrust that things aren't going to work out. There was a magician working on a cruise ship. He had a parrot that was always ruining his act, saying in the middle of the trick, the card is up his sleeve or he has a dove in his pocket, or he slipped it through the hole in his hat. (laughs) One day the ship sank. The parrot and the magician found themselves together on a life raft. For several days the parrot sat silently and stared at the magician. On the fourth day the parrot said, Okay, I give up. What did you do with the ship? Now, why did I tell you that story? (laughs) Sometimes I have to figure out how to weave in the things I tell you. (laughs) Our stories are our interpretations of reality, and we live more in our interpretations, our ideas about things, than we do in our direct sensory experience. Notice as you move through the day how many moments are spent in the movie about life and how many moments are spent feeling the sense of the breath, listening and hearing the sounds, being aware of the sensations, the life, the aliveness in this body, being aware that awareness is happening, that knowing is going on. We leave the immediate. We leave that sense of genuine intimacy and buy in instead to a movie, a second-hand movie. Now, the Buddha described the difference between pain and suffering. He described it like this. He said that it's inevitable that as we move through each day, there's going to be waves of pleasantness and waves of unpleasantness. And that if we are just experiencing that as they come and go, we'll sense they're impermanent. There's no one to blame. It's just changing weather. Where suffering comes in is we create a story. And this is kulpa pancha, our proliferation. We add on a layer where it's not just pain. It's pain that, and see if this registers for how today was, might never go away. Pain that could last the whole weekend, and how would we deal with it then? 
pain that might mean that we really have some terminal kind of cancer. You know, we build on a story to our raw data, and that creates the suffering. As I mentioned earlier, the biggest story we add on is that this means I'm deficient. If this is happening, this sleepiness, if this is happening, this desire for seconds, or this irritation at somebody for making noise, or whatever it is that's going on, if this is happening, it means something's wrong with moi. So meditation practice, what we really train in, is to begin to see how we add on to raw experience. How instead of just living in the immediacy of experience, we add on stories, believe in stories, and lock ourselves into suffering. And we do it even with spiritual life. We, Instead of just, okay, the Dharma, the feeling of it's about being present, we start concocting our ideas about what it means and how long we need to practice and what might happen. You know the story, some of you, of the um, student that goes to the Zen master and asks him, what happens after we die? And the, Zen, the master says, I don't know. And the student gets very upset. He said, I thought you were a Zen monk. And the guy answers, I am, but not a dead one. You know? <laughs> the answers we seek are not in the stories or the ideas or the theories. In fact, the only truth that we can ever discover is in the immediate apprehension of this moment. It's only right here. And as soon as we leave and try to concoct our ideas, we've left where truth lives and where love lives. We cannot touch it. So our practice is to recognize when we've been leaving, often thoughts, thinking, thinking, and then to pause, to stop doing, not even necessarily to come back and ride on the breath again, just to pause. And in that pause, just sense what's true. These pauses, this sacred pause, is this precious opening. It's where the light can come through the cracks. Arthur Rubenstein was once asked by an ardent admirer, how do you handle the notes as well as you do? The pianist answered, I handle notes no better than many others, but the pauses, ah, that is where the art resides. Maybe the most simple way of understanding Buddhist practice is that we realize that we've been lost and then we just simply stop, we just pause and touch in again. The spaces between. We are in such a rush and we're afraid to stop. It's kind of interesting. We're afraid with each other. We get into our conversations. And it becomes very um, embarrassing or awkward if the rhythm's broken. Or we move through our day, and just to stop and stand still can feel almost intolerable to sit still at certain moments. We're, We're in such a mode of running from something or to something. Do you know what I mean? It's very hard to pause. 
So what is it that we're not wanting to sit down in or feel? There's something very mysterious in the place between thoughts. You know, we're comfortable in our thinking, it's familiar, but there's something unfamiliar, mysterious, you might think of it as either scary or thrilling, very real, in those pauses between thoughts. It's like if we really reflect on the moments in our life when we felt most alive or real, there are always moments in those pauses. They're not when we're thinking about things or busy going towards something. There's a quality of here-ness and now-ness that's ineffable, it's timeless. And it's in that pause that we can feel our communion with the rest of life, that creativity happens. You know what it's like to be with somebody that has that capacity to pause because they're available. They're available to laugh. Really, you know, that that's what happens. It's like if somebody's available, funny stuff can happen and sad stuff can happen and hugs can happen and creativity happens because there's this availability because they're not on a program somewhere else. One of my favorite stories was when uh, Maurice Sendak, you know, the children's illustrator, was asked about some of his readers' comments. And he said, oh, there's so many. Can I give you just one I really like? It was from a little boy. He sent me a charming card with a little drawing. I loved it. I answer all my children's letters, sometimes very hastily. But this one I lingered over. I sent him a postcard and I drew a picture of a wild thing on it. I wrote, Dear Jim, I loved your card. Then I got a letter back from his mother and she said, Jim loved your card so much he ate it. (laughs) That to me was one of the highest compliments I've ever received. (laughs) He didn't care that it was an original drawing or anything. He saw it, he loved it, and he ate it. We go around with this kind of certainty, these ideas about how it all is, and yet we really don't know. I mean, we don't know what was here before this universe was created, or where we're going to, or even how come love matters so much. It's a mystery. So we we have this tight fist of certainty, and we're afraid to just kind of loosen the grip And yet all good things come, and all frightening things when we do. So we're in training. We're in training to loosen the grip, to live in uh, what's described as kind of non-conceptual presence. And that doesn't mean that we abolish thinking, or that we even deride it, but rather it becomes a servant. It doesn't ride us. We learn how to rest in that very vibrant, radiant awareness that is the source of all thoughts and the source of all love. So our practice is to come back again and again, to kind of relax and open into the pauses, 
a listening presence, an embodied presence. And the training by nature has to start with inhabiting these bodies. In a moment that we're actually feeling a sense of presence in our bodies, we're not as stuck to the stories. Check it out. Are you in your body right now? Can you feel a sense of being embodied and from that place include all other experiences? There's no way to connect directly with what's going on, to really contact life, if we're not in a very sensory way here in our bodies. I love this description, this inquiry. This is written by Hamid, uh, who's a Sufi teacher. And he says, when you hear the question, are you here, it's not important in answering that you try to be good or correct. It's important only to sincerely explore for yourself, are you here or not? You can do this and listen as I read. Are you in your body or oblivious? are only aware of parts of it. When I say, are you in your body, I mean, are you completely filling your body? I want to know whether you are in your feet or just have feet. Do you live in them? Are they just things you use when you walk? Are you in your belly? Or do you just know vaguely that you have a belly? Or is it just for food? Are you really in your hands? Or do you move them from a distance? Are you present in your cells, inhabiting and filling your body? If you aren't in your body, what significance is there in your experience this moment? Are you preparing so that you can be here in the future? Are you setting up conditions by saying to yourself, when such and such happens, I'll have time, I'll be here. If you're not here, what are you saving yourself for? Regardless of the stories you tell yourself, at this moment, this very moment, there is only this moment, here, now. Nothing else exists. The stories at best are maps. Everything we most cherish is when we get done with the maps and relax back into the changing stream of experiencing this moment. Now there are two qualities of attentiveness in this moment that you'll notice we've been cultivating and will continue through tomorrow. And one is a very precise contacting. Feel the breath, feel exactly the sensations, the tingling, feel the touch points where you're body is pressing against the cushion where your hands or your arms are connecting. Feel the mood of fear in your heart if you're feeling fear or peace if it's peace. This is contacting. It's what you might call the telescopic lens where there's precise connection with exactly what's happening. So we train in that. This is what Hamid was talking about. Are you, do you have feet? Are you in your feet? Can you feel them right now? That's telescopic connection. So there's the telescopic, and then there's the wide-angle lens, which is that we feel this embodied presence and we sense the space of awareness that it's all happening in. 
I describe this often as the ocean and waves, that we're this ocean of awareness with these waves of feelings, moods, everything's going through. And we need to be able to directly connect with the waves of experience and remember the truth of our wholeness, of being the ocean. If we just connect telescopic lens waves, what happens? We get identified. This is who I am. I'm an angry person that's feeling these prickles here and feeling pain here. We become that. Our identity becomes exclusively defined as the waves. If, on the other hand, we just say, oh, I'm an ocean of awareness, then what happens? We've denied our vitality, the vibrant, changing streams of experience. We've denied our life force. We need both this open awareness that senses really the space of of compassion and wisdom that is our identity, the one who knows, and we need to connect with the actual waves of moment-to-moment experience. Chogyam Trungpa did a wonderful description of the wide-angle lens. He said, imagine, and he put out this huge big sheet of white paper, and he said, put a little V on it, and he said, what's that? And everybody answered, and most everybody said, it's a bird. And he said, no, it's the sky with a bird flying through. We need to include the waves, the birds, the flowers, the smells, the touch, and the awareness that's knowing it, the space it's happening in. This is critical when we're lost in reactivity, and every one of us gets lost in reactivity, where we're wanting something different urgently, where we're really not liking how it is, where we're desperately afraid that something bad's going to happen. We need to remember the big picture. I met a woman a few months ago when I was up in Pennsylvania at a workshop. And she had recently discovered that her grown daughter had been abused by her stepfather and her uncle. So here she is, her daughter's grown now, but she's finding out at this late stage of life that this child of hers, as a child, was abused. And she felt tortured by the knowledge. I mean, I'm sure everyone here can imagine. And so she went and to visit a old Jesuit priest who had a real reputation for kindness and wisdom and told him her story. She, she told him about her horror and her rage and how, you know, there was a lot of her that felt murderous. And after hearing her story, he took her by the hand and he held her hand. And she described how this happened. She, she said he covered her hand with his, this big old wrinkled hand that was so warm. And he said, this is your wholeness, this, this whole feeling of your hand held, your communion with God. And here, and then he made a circle right in the middle of her palm. He said, here's where your personal story lives. And for this time, you may be submerged. You might be kicking and screaming and furious right in this little spot here. And that's natural, and you've got to let that happen. So allow it. But if you can do that and remember, and then he put his hand on hers again, this whole, this boundless world of spirit that you're a part of, then there'll be healing. 
You have to live this, this spot right in the middle, and remember the spirit, the container, the whole. I love this story because I thought it was a beautiful description of living the Dharma and healing in our emotional lives. That we absolutely have to have the courage to feel fully how angry we can be and how much grief there is and how much hurt there is and where the betrayals are. And we have to, at the same time, for there to be healing and growth, remember this warm, loving hand that holds it all, which is really the truth of our connection to all beings, which is really the awareness that's always radiant, which is really the compassion that's there. So there's these two qualities of awareness. There's this kind of wide-angle lens, the, the space that holds everything in this this contact, and we find at any given time we need to emphasize one versus another. Some of you might remember how Suzuki Roshi put it. He said, if you want to control a cow, give it a wide enough pasture. Well, we have to keep coming back to that. It's, we, can't, we can't manipulate ourselves by squeezing ourselves. It's like Dale brought up today with, with the meditation practice. If we're trying to control things, it can get tight. The true way to find freedom and healing got to give it a lot of space. Let this life happen in a large container. This was an article called The Mellowing of the American Cowboy. There's a new thing called holistic herding, our low-stress livestock handling. <laughs> Get this. It says it's changing the whole face of the West, according to a U.S. conservation official quoted in the National Post. Cattle are happier, healthier, and more obedient, he said, if they are not shouted at or subjected to stress, but rather, as one rancher put it, allowed to make up their own minds where to go. Not surprisingly, more rugged cowboys avoid ranches that have adopted the procedures. (laughs) Hmm. So this practice of becoming more real means including both the actuality, the waves of our moment-to-moment experience, and this spaciousness. What happens frequently, because we're so conditioned to avoid what's difficult, is that part of our practice is to genuinely ask what wants attention. And this is something that Um, if we don't do, if we don't have some place in us that's saying, okay, so what really wants to be included or wants acceptance? We'll find that our body-minds go down their familiar tracks and avoid what's difficult. It's kind of like if you sense a parent, an ideal parent, and how they're relating to a child. There's definitely this ongoing quality of interest and care to see what needs to be seen, to pay attention to what needs to be paid attention to. So we're cultivating that awareness. It says Krishnamurti wrote, he says, we pay attention because we care, which means we really love. So part of our practice, and I encourage you to explore it, is when you're sitting, if you sense some disquiet or discomfort, and it's vague, you can just ask that question, what is asking for acceptance? for inclusion, for attention. 
And in a way, we're setting up a relationship with our inner life, which is one of genuine metta, or care. Every time you deepen your attention to your inner life, there's a communication of caring. So one of the beautiful things about retreat is really it's an ongoing metta meditation because we're paying a much closer level of attention to our inner life than we usually do. We ignore ourselves usually. And because of that, we don't really know how to pay attention to others. We're learning how to care. The depth of caring is already there, but we're connecting with it by watching and listening deeply. Now, sometimes this quality of presence, of attention, that we offer is one of quietness. We just learn to get quiet. When the Pope recently, as many of you probably were following in the paper, was at the Holocaust Memorial in Jerusalem, he had some moments that were quite poignant, and the press picked up on them. And this is one quote I read where he spoke about silence. He said, in this place of memories, the mind and heart and soul feel an extreme need for silence. And this is what he said in the Hall of Remembrance, which is inscribed with the names of 30 death camps. He says, silence in which to remember. Silence to make sense of memories that come rolling back. Silence because there are no words strong enough. So we're talking about how to cultivate this kind of awareness that touches what's true and holds it in a space that's spacious. And the key is this quality of silence and care. We have to get quiet to listen. Isn't it true? Sometimes the quality of care that we express towards ourselves or towards each other is more of an active kind of expressiveness. I love the word namaste. You know, we chanted this namo today. I love it because, well, in Asia, it's so interesting to me that everybody greets each other saying namaste, namaste. It's like here we are in this country and we go, hi. (laughs) And they're there going, I see the divine spark in you. (laughs) What a difference, you know? Let me just read you. This is Rachel Naomi Raymond, and she's writing about the beauty of namaste. I see the divine spark within you. She says, here we are too often fooled by someone's appearance, their age or illness or anger or meanness, to recognize that there is in everyone a place of goodness and integrity, no matter how deeply buried. When we recognize the spark of God in others, We blow on it with our attention and strengthen it, no matter how deeply it has been buried or for how long ago. When we bless someone, we touch the unborn goodness in them and wish it well. Now imagine this, that we go through this life and we're learning to pay attention. We're paying attention to our inner life, which is offering a blessing to our inner life. We're paying attention to each other. And in each moment that we can look within or at each other and in some way go namo, namaste, we're blowing on that divine spark. We're helping to bring it alive. (laughs) 
Rachel Raymond has just written a book called My Grandfather's Blessings, and I recommend it to all of you. It just came out about a month ago. And in it she describes a lot about this path of paying attention and the blessing of paying attention to ourselves and each other. And she talks about her learning of this blessing through her grandfather, who was only alive for her first seven years, but he gave her a name, Neshumalei, which means little beloved soul. And he would always speak to her and in some way be acknowledging her soul out loud. And that's how she learned about the power of having your soul acknowledged. I mean, if you grow up and someone's always looking at you and seeing what's sacred inside your eyes, there's a much better chance that you'll end up believing in it and trusting it. So she describes how he did this, and then when he died at seven, she said she had never lived in a world without him in it before, and it was hard. There was no one left to call me Nashumale, and at first I was afraid that without him to see me and tell God who I was, I might disappear. But slowly over time I came to understand that in some mysterious way I had learned to see myself through his eyes, and that once blessed, we are forever blessed. Many years later, when in her extreme old age, my mother surprisingly began to light candles and talk to God herself, I told her about my grandfather's blessings and what they had meant to me. She smiled at me sadly. I have blessed you every day of your life, Rachel, she told me. I just never had the wisdom to do it out loud. So that that really touched me because I realized we go through this life and we're either afraid or not realizing the power of offering blessings. That we don't so often touch ourselves and offer ourselves a blessing. Again, it's this container of touching what's here and offering space and care. And we definitely are afraid to do it to each other, to really offer our blessing. And yet, it's the source of healing. When the Buddha taught about metta, or loving-kindness, he said, our fear is great, but greater yet is the truth of our connectedness. That this is the medicine. This is what heals. This is that big picture, our softness, our connectedness, that makes room for the waves. We cannot be present with our experience if we do not feel that space of connection. A story for you. This is written by Sister Helen, who um, describes her, role, her job as a teacher. And she says, He was in my third grade class, the first one I taught at St. Mary's, and of all the 34 students that I had, Mark Elkland was a miracle, one in a million. Very neat in appearance, he had that happy-to-be-alive attitude that made even his occasional mischievousness delightful. Now Mark talked incessantly. I had to remind him again and again that talking without permission was not acceptable. What impressed me so much, though, was his sincere response every time I had to correct him for misbehaving. Thank you for correcting me, sister. (laughs) I didn't know what to make of it at first, but before long I became accustomed to hearing it many times a day. One morning my patience was growing thin when Mark talked once too often, and then I made a novice teacher's mistake. I looked at him and said, "If if you say one more word, I'm going to tape your mouth shut. It wasn't 
10 seconds later when Chuck blurted out, Mark's talking again. I hadn't asked any of the students to help me watch Mark, but since I had stated the punishment, I had to act on it. I walked to my desk, very deliberately opened the drawer, took out a roll of masking tape. Without saying a word, I proceeded to Mark's desk, tore off two pieces of tape, and made a big X with them over his mouth. I then returned to the front of the room. As I glanced at Mark to see how he was doing, he winked at me. That did it. I started laughing. The class cheered as I walked back to Mark's desk, removed the tape, and shrugged my shoulders. His first words were, thank you for correcting me, sister. (laughs) At the end of the year, I was asked to teach junior high math. The years flew by, and before I knew it, Mark was in my classroom again. Since he had to listen carefully to my instructions in new math, he didn't talk quite as much in ninth as he did in third. Now, one Friday, things didn't feel right. We'd all worked hard on a new concept, and students were getting frustrated with themselves and edgy with one another. And I had to do something to stop this crankiness before it got out of hand. So I asked them to list the names of other students in the room on two sheets of paper, leaving a space between each name. Then I told them to think of the nicest thing they could say about each of their classmates and write it down. It took the remainder of the class period to finish their assignment, and as the students left the room, each one handed me the papers. Charles smiled. Mark said, thank you for teaching me, sister, and have a good weekend. And that Saturday, I wrote down the name of each student on a separate sheet of paper, and I listed what everyone had said about that individual. On Monday, I gave the student his or her list. Before long, the entire class was smiling. Really, I heard whispered. I never knew I meant anything to anyone. I didn't know others liked me so much. No one mentioned those papers in class again. I never knew if they discussed them after class or with their parents, but it didn't matter. The exercise had accomplished its purpose. The students seemed deeply happy with themselves, with each other. That group of students moved on, and several years later, after I returned from a vacation, my parents met me at the airport. As we were driving home, Mother asked the usual questions about the trip, weather, my experiences, etc., but then there was a lull in the conversation. My father cleared his throat as he usually did before saying something important. The Ooklands called last night, he began. Really, I said, I haven't heard from them in years. I wonder how Mark is. Dad responded quietly. Mark was killed in Vietnam. The funeral's tomorrow, and his parents would like it if you could attend. I had never seen a serviceman in a military coffin before. Mark looked so handsome, so mature. All I could think at that moment was, Mark, I would give all the masking tape in the world if only you would talk to me. The church was packed with Mark's friends. Chuck's sister sang, song, and then I wondered why it had to rain on the day of the funeral. It was difficult enough at the graveside. The pastor said the usual prayers, and the bugler played taps. As I stood there, one of the soldiers who acted as pallbearer came up to me. Were you Mark's math teacher? He asked. I nodded as I continued to stare at the coffin. Mark talked about you a lot, he said. After the funeral, most of Mark's former classmates headed to Chuck's farmhouse for lunch. Mark's mother and father were there, obviously waiting for me. We want to show you something, his father said, taking a wallet out of his pocket. They found this on Mark when he was killed. We thought you might recognize it. Opening the billfold, he carefully removed two worn pieces of notebook paper that had obviously been taped, folded, and refolded many times. I knew without looking that the papers were the ones on which I had listed all the good things each of Mark's classmates had said about him. 
Thank you so much for doing that, Mark's mother said. As you can see, Mark treasured it. Mark's classmates started to gather around. Charlie smiled rather sheepishly and said, I still have my list. It's in the top drawer of my desk at home. Chuck's wife said, Chuck asked me to put his in our wedding album. I have mine too, Marilyn said. It's in my diary. Then Vicky, another classmate, reached into her pocketbook and took out her wallet and showed her worn and frazzled list to the group. I carry this with me all the time, Vicky said. I think we all saved our lists. That's when I finally sat down and cried. I cried for Mark and for all his friends who would never see him again. And I cried for the wonder of caring and the power of expressing it. I read you that story, and it's a long one, because we are not very accustomed to extending care to our own beings and each other in a more overt way. We have our habitual ways, but to be sincere without wax, where we can be vulnerable and real in our bodies and express in that way, is really the source of all healing. We can't underestimate the power of being able to see the good in ourselves or in another being. Being able to say namaste and really see the divine spark. It's an amazingly beautiful thing. And because our conditioning is so often to turn against ourselves, it's a beautiful and intentional part of the path to practice it formally. And this is the metta practice. This is where we see the good and we offer our care. Now, I started tonight talking about getting real by seeing through our stories. Perhaps this is the most powerful way to see through our stories. We have stories that tell us about what's wrong with us and wrong with our world that limit us. We have stories basically that take us away from the moment. So it's a powerful way to re-enter, to pause, to touch what's happening, and to hold it with care, to offer care in this way. We're learning to be without wax, to let ourselves feel the cracks, and also let ourselves sense the light that can shine through those cracks. I'd like to end with the words of one of my favorite teachers, Punjaji. Just meditate for a bit on this. Before the beginning, you are pure consciousness. You are the fullness of love in love and the emptiness of awareness. You are existence and the peace beyond peace. You are that screen on which all is projected. You are the light of knowledge the one who gave the concept of the creation to the creator. Forget what can be forgotten and know yourself to be that which can never be forgotten. You are the substratum on which everything moves. Let it move. You are now. You are nowness. What I is there which can be out of this now? You are truth, and only the truth is. You are the one which is aware of awareness of objects and ideas. You are the one which is even more silent than awareness. 
for you are the life which precedes the concept of life. Your nature is silence, and it is not attainable. It always is. This is a path of being, not doing. There's nothing to do. We're just discovering who we already are by relaxing, by connecting with the ways of this moment, and by bringing the boundless love of our nature to touch just what's here. So let's just sit quietly for a few minutes together, please. Before the beginning, you are pure consciousness. You are the fullness of love in love and the emptiness of awareness, your existence and the peace beyond peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.